welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're starting off the year 2024 with not very original, not a very original idea, but hopefully a very practical one and a rather practical series that we're calling Reboot. And you know how it goes. Phones, tablets, computers, modems, wonderful as they are, they occasionally get stuck in that thing, I'm not even sure what it's called, just sits there and spins, and nothing happens, and so we have to reboot them. And occasionally, we need a reboot. Now and then, certain aspects of our lives, important aspects, certain aspects of our life of faith, get stuck and just spin, and nothing's really happening, and we need a reboot. And so we're going to begin... 2024, talking about a few of these issues and areas of our lives that have a tendency to get stuck. And the first one is marriage. That's our topic today. And I realize that in talking about marriage, that we are talking about something that doesn't apply to everyone who is sitting here. Fully recognize that. Why? Because not everybody is married. And I get that. And we have sought to be sensitive to this over the years and not overdo it, but in my opinion, we've probably underdone it by uh, not talking about it quite enough. Not to mention the fact that we live in a culture that is increasingly driven by what some call, and I like this phrase, though it does not speak well of where we're heading, this phrase, expressive individualism. We're living in a culture where this is just becoming the norm. Do what I want-ism might be a simpler way to put it. And in this kind of cultural setting, as we all know, marriage gets bent and twisted in all sorts of directions to suit the I and to suit the me. And that is a big deal for all of us, married or not. And so we want to consider this. Also realize in talking about marriage, we're talking about something that for many people is extremely painful for a wide range of reasons. And hopefully if you've been here any length of time, you realize we don't enter into this wanting to stomp around and pretend that it's not painful, pretend that there aren't deep wounds associated with this topic of marriage. And so we hope to walk lightly as we go into this. But the other fact of the matter is, is that many people are married, and no matter how mature or spiritual we may be, marriage can be a tough deal. Marriage is hard work, no matter where we're at. And it's even harder in a cultural context where I and me are now the center of the universe. So if you would stand for our scripture today in light of the topic of marriage, I'm going to be reading a longer passage. It comes from Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading verses 15 through 33. You might be familiar with this passage, but I'm actually going to reach back a little further than is typical when this passage is read, back to verse uh, 15. So Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 33, letter to the Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, we'll start in verse 15. Be careful, very careful then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, But understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. 
Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I imagine there's already some twitching and some twisting based on those words. Hang in there. We'll get to it in time. But let me start with a couple of introductory remarks. And the first is that marriage is obviously too big of a topic to cover exhaustively in one message. So there are going to be all sorts of things that we're going to have to choose to ignore, not give sufficient attention to, not actually even wade into at all, or else we're going to have to choose to be here till about 9 o'clock tonight, which I know we don't want to do. There's no woo-hoos on that, so we're not going to do that. But just understand there'll be a whole bunch of things that we aren't going to be able to touch upon. And you might have the thought, yeah, but what about this? What about that? And I'm completely with you on all the whatabouts. We just don't have time to get into it all. Second introductory comment, Paul's words here in Ephesians chapter 5 were profoundly countercultural when they were first written and first read. And this is a critical point in understanding what is actually happening in these verses. Greek and Roman culture, which was part of the first century Mediterranean environment, it was the first century Mediterranean environment, Greek and Roman culture had seriously shaped first century views of women, sex, men, and marriage, and ultimately not for the better. In a phrase, it was chaos and do-what-I-want-ism on steroids. And if we had the time, we could dive into where all of these different marriage and sexual and here's man, here's woman, and how that all works, it was utter chaos on steroids. So Paul's teaching here in Ephesians 5 was countercultural and maybe even unimaginable to his first listeners because it was so unlike the culture they were in. And his teaching here in Ephesians 5, I would suggest, continues to be profound as we live in this expressively individualistic cultural context. These words in Ephesians 5 go against the flow, straight upstream from modern-day marriage philosophy, not because they are old school or unenlightened, but because his words are not merely his words. As Christ followers, we believe the words of the Bible 
are inspired by God and able to transform our lives and our marriages if we cooperate and do our part. Third introductory comment, I'm bringing 33 years of my own marriage to this message. And Julie and I would say, and I can tell you this because I asked her, Julie and I would say our marriage for 33 years has been, at the same time, extraordinarily challenging and extraordinarily wonderful. And we would both say, because I asked her, the past several years have been especially wonderful and especially good. Now, I prefer to bash on myself because there's so much material. So this might sound a little odd, but this is one area where over the past handful of years, Julie and I have experienced something and it's been really wonderful and it's been really good. Now, we haven't arrived. Our marriage isn't perfect. Julie's got a long way to go. But what I'm talking about today is not theoretical. The paradigms and practices I'm going to mention in a moment have actually helped Julie and I grow as a couple. The fourth introductory comment I want to make is this. There are lots of nuances on this subject, and we could explore many of them. There are lots of, yeah, but what about this points of discussion? And we could explore many of them. Just for our purpose, before I say what I want to here, recognize, I recognize there are many of those nuances and yeah buts. But I feel like this needs to be said. A healthy marriage is the foundation of a healthy family. And a healthy family is foundational to a healthy society. A healthy marriage can create ripple effects through many generations. While a broken marriage, whether it's officially broken, meaning papers have been filed and spouses live apart, etc., or unofficially broken, papers haven't been filed but spouses live apart, often does the opposite through many generations, has the opposite ripple effect. I also feel like this needs to be said. Marriage is intended to be good. Marriage is intended to be fun. Marriage is intended to be appropriately fulfilling. Not completely fulfilling, but appropriately fulfilling. It is intended to be a lifelong relationship of mutual love and submission between a man and a woman, believe it or not, where intimacy increases through the years. The longer a couple is married, the deeper their intimacy becomes. That's the intention. So marriage is worth the effort, and it's worth the struggle, and it's worth the pain. And again, I said this earlier, but I have zero interest in the shame game, the bash game, the guilt game, the hammer game. That's of no interest to me. I want to kindle hope today in my comments. Hope for a new kind of marriage. It is never too late to open ourselves to the Spirit of God and allow Him to change us and allow Him to change our marriage. And I recognize in saying that in a room with this many people in it that there are plenty of people who simply no longer believe this. 
Not because they don't want to, but because the evidence that is sitting right in front of them in the form of their own relationship suggests to them that history is the greater, greatest predictor of the future. And that means that they've lost hope. So let me say it again. It's never too late to open ourselves to the Spirit of God and allow Him to change us and our marriage. It's never too late for that. Whether we've been married six months, six years, or 60 years, Jesus can change our marriage if we do our part. So I'm going to rattle off five practices to cultivate health in our marriage. This is not an exhaustive list. Think of it this way. These are Ephesians 5 principles applied to the details of married life, and each one of these has been important to Julie and I for what that's worth. So the first one is to decrease self. Growth toward a healthy marriage happens when we decrease self. From every angle we look at it, in the Bible, a healthy marriage is an other-centered endeavor. It is not an expressively individualistic endeavor. It is about both spouses following in the footsteps of Jesus and learning to die to self for the sake of the other. So the cross is the logo of a healthy marriage. And there are a million ways to work this out, but the cross is the meta-narrative of a healthy marriage relationship. I mentioned this, Ephesians 5 has concepts that people trip all over, which is why I chose it. Let's just spit it right out there and hear it and deal with it. The word submission in particular wreaks all kinds of havoc. I can already hear, I heard it a minute ago, I heard people squirming. I could see inside the twisting and the bending. Submission sounds demeaning, it does. Submission sounds diminishing. And there are a gazillion debates from this passage around the role of men and the role of women and who can do what and who is the head of the household and what does that actually look like in practical terms and what happens if a woman is more of a leader and has leadership gifts than the man is a blah, 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 blah. And all sorts of resistance arises at the sound of submission and at the sound of the idea that the husband is the head of the wife like Christ is the head of the church. And the whole tone and the tenor of this passage kind of gets into us because it feels like Paul is saying the husband is the boss and the wife is his employee. But I want us to remember something. Paul is writing this into a chaotic culture where it was kind of accepted that the husband was kind of an arrogant boss and his wife was his employee. That was one of the effects of Roman and Greek culture. And Paul says in verses 18 through 20 of what I read a moment ago, when people are increasingly filled with God's spirit and motivated by his power, by his will, and by his way, the quest for control, the battle about who is in charge, the pursuit of power will all be transformed into verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5, which says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, we don't see this in our English Bibles, but Ephesians 5 verses 18 through 21 is one long sentence 
in the original Greek that this was written. So I want to read 18 through 21 as one long sentence. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, comma. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, comma. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, comma. Singing and psalming from your heart to the Lord, comma. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, comma. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, comma. Being subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, period. See, the filling of the Spirit severely and radically alters how we relate to each other, brothers and sisters. Verse 21, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it severely and radically alters the filling of the Spirit, how we relate to each other in our marriage. See, the prevailing posture of a Christ-centered, Spirit-filled marriage is one of Humility, mutual submission, and extravagant, other-centered love. In nine of the verses we read in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul compares marriage to the relationship Jesus has with the church. And he's linking these two things, marriage and Jesus and the church. He's putting them together, linking them comparing them on purpose. Verses 24 and 25. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. The trigger language in this passage causes us to focus in and our thoughts get filled with it can't mean this. And in the course of saying what it can't mean, we miss the beauty and the wonder and the glory of what it does mean. See, marriage is designed to be a symbol of God's love and relationship with his people. Let me say this in a way that's in keeping with Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany meaning manifestation, Jesus being revealed to these wise men who came to find him. Your marriage, my marriage, is to be an epiphany of the kingdom of God. It's to be a manifestation of God's love and relationship with his people. A symbol of that. All the way back at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, Paul cites this in Ephesians 5. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The two becoming one. The bringing together of those who otherwise might not come together. God bringing people to himself through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. In two words, new creation. Marriage is a symbol of new creation. A symbol of what God is doing in the world through Jesus. Because what God is doing in the world through Jesus is he is bringing together. He's renewing. He's restoring. He's transforming. So before we twist in the wind too much over submission and headship and who's in charge, remember this. The sacrificial, other-centered, perfect love of Jesus for the church sets the standard for what love is and what love does in a marriage relationship. 
And remember this, the sacrificial, other-centered, perfect love of Jesus compelled him to give his life away for the sake of his bride, the church. He gave himself away so the church, his people, we, could reunite with him and become what God intended us to become. So his sacrifice was for our good and for our radiance. Marriage symbolizes the new creation work God is doing in the world right now. Now, when it sits there in the sort of generalized form of marriage, it may not grab us quite as much. So let me say it this way. Julie and I are to be a symbol of the new creation work God is doing in the world right now. And that is not at all about me and my needs or what I want. That is about decreasing me so Jesus can increase in our marriage. Now, maybe I'm in the minority on this one, but when I consider this passage as it relates to my marriage to Julie over the last 33 years, one thing arrests my attention immediately and holds it steady. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and to present her as a radiant church. And I'll say this, and maybe I'm alone on this, I need another 33 years to qualify as a beginner of this kind of sacrificial, other-centered, perfect love. See, this kind of love is about decreasing Mike. This kind of love is about dying to Mike. This kind of love is about the good of Julie. And when you've got both operating this way, seeking this, prayerfully stumbling toward this, you've got something that is starting to manifest something this chaotic world needs to see. See, your marriage is a symbol that points to the extreme and profound love and submission of Jesus and his church. Your marriage is a symbol that points to new creation. And anyone who wants to split all that up into who's in charge, I say have at it because I got my hands full with loving Julie as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. Second suggestion is increase self-awareness. Decrease self, increase self-awareness. More than any other relationship, you know this as well as I do, marriage reveals who we actually are. I mean, this is basic common sense stuff. Marriage is where the truth of who we are is manifested, revealed, displayed, epiphanized, make up a word, without any edits. Because we step off our various platforms, we take off our various masks, and we let down our guard when we walk through our front door. So our spouse sees the real us. 
It is not an accident that Paul says in verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And seconds later, he launches into particulars of family relationships. You see how smart he was? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me talk with you about marriage. Think about it. It's easy to be Christ-like in public. It's easy to be a servant to those we don't sleep with. We are on when we're standing on a platform. But at home, we are off. So our closest relationships are the most revealing of the actual state of our inner being. And again, it's, I may be making it sound simple. It's not simple. Nuances, yeah, but I get it. I realize it takes two to do marriage in a healthy way. So it's frequently going to be messy and it's going to be hard because both are not always interested in doing the work. And then we have to adjust and so on and so forth. But growing self-awareness is one of the most important practices in a healthy marriage. Knowing what drives us. Owning our stuff. Becoming an expert on ourselves. Knowing why we react the way we react. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7 and verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? The authentic self-awareness is hard for some because it's so vulnerable. We may not like what we find when we start to reflect on who we are. Over the years, I have sat with dozens and dozens and dozens of husbands and wives, sometimes together, sometimes when they're on their own, and one common grief point I've heard a million times goes something like this. She or he is talking usually when she or he is not in the room. The other she or he. And it goes something like this. The person says, you know, I have many flaws and failings. I get mad too easy. I overreact. I'm too controlling. My insecurities are many, but... I often feel like I'm the problem in my marriage, or at least I think she or he thinks so. Because I rarely hear him or her own their stuff, admit their weakness, apologize for their mistakes. I know I've got a lot of them, but I don't often hear the other talk about theirs. Increasing self-awareness is so Crucial. Why do I do what I do to use Paul's phrase in Romans chapter 7? See, the alternative to increasing self-awareness is the blame game. Adam and Eve did it, and so do we. In Genesis 3, Adam said, after all this mess went on, ah, I love this, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate it. You know what he's doing? He's blaming God. You put her here, and he's blaming Eve. Then Eve does the same thing. She says, well, the devil made me do it. See, if we don't face ourselves and own our stuff, we will export our marriage challenges onto our spouse. If only she did this more. If only he was more like that. Why can't she, all these thoughts in her head, how come he, it's the husband you gave me, God? The blame game. Marriage happens in the details of everyday life with all of its pressures and fears and innuendos and slights. And we have to know ourselves and know the games we play, the tricks we use, the fears we have, 
and the insecurities we bring into the relationship. I could tell you stories until tomorrow morning about Julie's and my journey in self-awareness and the blame game we've played and how self-awareness leads to life and hope and goodness and the blame game leads to low-grade anger and bitterness between the spouses. I'll say it, increased self-awareness has been the most important tool in our 33 years of marriage. Moving from Mike being an expert on Julie to Mike being an expert on Mike and Julie being an expert on Julie. Fourth suggestion, I think it's four. Three? Three, maybe there's only four, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I should stop now, but anyway. Third suggestion is meaningful conversation. For Julie and me, this is backyard time. Time together, having a meaningful conversation about the stuff I just mentioned, all those things. Games we play, tricks we use, fears we have, insecurities we carry, pain we can't shake, shame we experience. I'm bringing this to the backyard and she and I are having a conversation and I'm opening some of this stuff up to her and she to me. Or a meaningful conversation about something not nearly as heavy. Just a dream we have for the future. Something fun we'd like to do. Something good that happened in life and what it did to her or what it did to me. The possibilities are endless, but you might ask, what makes a meaningful conversation? Here's my answer. Vulnerability makes a conversation meaningful. I mean, we have to talk about who's getting the milk and who's taking Missy to soccer practice. But a meaningful conversation happens when we open ourselves even a little to our spouse. So we're not just talking logistics. We're down in the details of what makes us tick or hurt or laugh or cry. And if you're wondering, the topics that'll get us there really fast, laugh, hurt, anger, tears, money is one, sex is one, talking about our spiritual life is one, talking about what we're learning about God is one. It's opening up and having the conversation about these things uh, that makes things meaningful. Vulnerability makes a conversation meaningful. I know what some of you are thinking, and you should be. You're thinking, backyard time? What's that? Try having backyard time when the kids are screaming or crying or needing help in their homework and no one in the family has eaten anything but Cheetos for the last three days. You're going to have backyard time. I get it. It's messy and it's hard, especially when there are young children and a puppy or a cat. I get that. So a meaningful conversation in a lot of situations isn't going to last from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Maybe it's from 9 p.m. to 9.15. Maybe it's from 9 p.m. to 9.01 p.m. But if meaningful conversation doesn't happen, you can go to the bank on this. A pattern will form. A brain path will form. The two will become one, and the one will have a brain path that gets formed over time. Namely, our marriage will get trained to center on logistics and chaos and household obligations and practical demands. And in time, the chaos of life will become the basis of our bond. I've seen this happen, I can't even tell you how many times. Kids and chaos and logistics become the bonding agent of the marriage. And the relationship 
settles at the surface. Better said, it hardens at the surface. But one day, the chaos will lessen. No more dance practices, no more soccer practices, and we'll look across the room and we'll see a roommate instead of a lover, a co-worker instead of a soul friend. And then you know what happens? We will find ways to create chaos in order to keep our distance from our spouse because we've learned to prefer it that way. It's a vicious cycle. We have to make space for meaningful conversations where we cultivate emotional intimacy. Tim Keller, in a book called The Meaning of Marriage, puts it this way, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. So the fourth and the last thing is to give grace. The unfortunate reality in some marriages is that spouses carry low-grade anger or bitterness or contempt for the other because of something that was done or not done in the past or because our spouse is not what we had hoped they would be. And this anger or bitterness or contempt builds a wall between us and our spouse, brick by lonely brick. But new creation, God's work and activity in the world, is about restoration and healing and new life emerging. God's work is about bringing together that which is separated. And I know this is rough to say, but there are a lot of married couples who are separated even though they're living under the same roof. Jesus laid down his life to shatter the walls and bring people back to him. And our marriage is to be a symbol of this. So what to do about the wall between us and the one we love? I'm going to keep this really short, but if anyone on the planet should be exceptional at giving grace, it should be Christians. Having received grace in immeasurable abundance, we should lavishly and willingly and frequently give grace to those who need it. And I promise you, as sure as we're in this room, our spouse needs our grace. It's easy for us to give it to others. But our spouse needs our grace, not once, but again and again. Now, grace in a marriage doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want without consequence. It doesn't mean that. Grace doesn't mean just keep accepting ongoing abuse and violence. It doesn't mean that. Grace means something like this. And I put all this in quotes. It means something like this. I understand you are human, and you are in process of becoming whom God created you to be. So I forgive you. I love you. I believe in you. I, too, am very imperfect and broken and in process. So I'm with you in this. I've got my own journey to walk, and I need your grace. So I give you grace. And with the Holy Spirit's help, I will keep choosing to lavishly and willingly and frequently give you grace. Grace is the mark of Jesus' people. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, this is one of these subjects that's impossible to mention without all sorts of stuff unleashing inside of us. So I pray today for the married couples of Oak Hills. 
I pray that you would be at work in the souls of husbands and wives, bringing them together in mutual love, submission, and other-centered giving. I pray that you will bring healing and restoration, that you will shatter walls, and that the marriages of Oak Hills will be a symbol that point to your new creation. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.